0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But i also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We move on now to podcast number 30 in our series on world history in podcast 29 we reviewed some of the largest contributions of the renaissance age that being the clock as well as the printing press we looked at how females fared in the new age but then i also at the end of that podcast indicated that not every institution or organization was going to fare as well in the age of the renaissance as others if you recall back several podcasts ago close to the beginning, in fact, of the series on world history, I mentioned that for every time that humans, the human race advances, for every positive, there is a potential, if not a real negative. And in this case, the organization that's not going to fare as well in the Renaissance age is that of the Roman Catholic Church. would that's the reason that this particular podcast episode is called breakdown within the Roman Catholic Church. Loyal listeners and avid listeners could readily recall, as well as you world history scholars out there, that, wait a minute, as we head into the age of the Renaissance, that's not the first time the Roman Catholic Church is having any problems. You're absolutely right. We already talked about the break off of the Orthodox Church. We also mentioned the different problems with the Great Papal Schism. Those were serious, serious problems. However, Those were problems with the organization at the upper end of the powerful hierarchy, the Roman Catholic Pope and the immediate cardinals surrounding him. In this case, what I mean by breakdown within the Roman Catholic Church is going to boil down to the very foundation of the Roman Catholic Church with the priests and bishops. It's not necessarily going to be just involving cardinals and the various popes as they continue to get appointed or elected as time moves on into the age of the renaissance so what we're looking at here is four distinctive problems that the human population was having with the relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. So I'm going to mention these four specific terms or problems, flesh those out, and then discuss how the Roman Catholic Church was going to respond or did respond. So within this, the first off is that of immorality. By immorality, as its term applies, being immoral is that we so many episodes of or, uh, circumstances or issues. Excuse me, with Roman Catholic priests that are having children with married women, with single women, uh, married uh, uh, priests that are married in one faith and then a Roman Catholic priest in another. This is what we mean by priests being immoral. A second problem was ignorance. By ignorance, I'm talking about the likes, for example, similar to, I should say, to that of like an Archie Bunker or a George Jefferson. These are people that suffer from the lack of what we might call a standardized education and an open mind. In this case, ignorance in the Roman Catholic Church were priests that practically didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament couldn't answer the reasons why, for example, the various rituals that the Roman Catholic Church has us throughout its liturgical year. So that's what we mean by ignorance. Another problem was plurality. In some cases, because of the lack of priests, it was not unknown for priests to have more than one assignment. And in that case, the one assignment might take the priest to location A, but then location B might not actually have a live priest to say the daily, much less weekly, Masses. And that was becoming problematic. And the final problem was absenteeism, which somewhat dovetails with plurality. The lack of consistent population of Roman Catholic priests meant that some parishes sometimes went for months, if not years, without actually seeing a Roman Catholic priest. So these were the four problems. That the Roman Catholic Church had to address now in the age of the Renaissance, but let me if 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 you go no nowhere further. If you're one of those listeners that says you know I'm not really into the history of the Roman Catholic Church, again moving forward. If I were somehow pressed to not discuss religion at all in my world history podcasts. They would be a heck of a lot shorter and there would be far fewer of them because religion influences human life. There's just no way around that. And for me to not discuss that by and large would be doing you a huge disservice because religion is what in some cases made the population tick. It's what made them move in the directions that they did. That said, These four problems that I mentioned, immorality, ignorance, plurality, and absenteeism, these were not new. These didn't just begin to happen in the age of the Renaissance. It's not as though that these problems surfaced because of the effects of the Black Plague. Certainly the plague was wiping out the population of priests in certain areas, adding to problems of absenteeism, requiring the church then to assign priests to more than one location. Again, the evidence of the problems of plurality. But what I'm talking about here is the reason why we're discussing them at this point in the World History Podcast is because prior to the Renaissance, Feudal estate A might have a problem with their priests with immorality and ignorance, but nothing else. Feudal estate B, 30 miles away, might have a problem with their priests in the sense of plurality and absenteeism, but nothing else. Prior to the age of the Renaissance, those problems loomed And oftentimes were taken care of or not taken care of and just simply tolerated all within the confines of the feudal walls of that estate. But in the age of the Renaissance, these problems are being exposed throughout Western and Eastern Europe. Why? Just because it's the age of the Renaissance? No, of course not. They're being exposed because of that invention called the printing press. The printing press is what allowed news of these problems in various feudal estates to travel like wildfire for other citizens of other feudal estates to recognize that, wait a minute, we're not the only one that has a Father Tom that doesn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Father Pete over here, we often thought he just read the way he did because that's just his personality. Well, it turns out he can't read at all, which is the reason why he was caught holding the Bible upside down sometimes. Those kinds of issues. The printing press is what, again, forwarded, forwarded this, the news of these problems to other feudal estates throughout Europe. So those are the four problems that the Roman Catholic Church, again, isn't recognizing for the first time, not scratching its head for the first time saying, wow, didn't know we had these issues. No, it did. The difference now, though, is the printing press is allowing the church to recognize that the congregation, the public, recognizes these problems. And because of the new characteristics of humanism, and the human population driving for answers, driving to answer the questions how and why, they're demanding a response from the Roman Catholic Church. Simply keeping their heads down and praying that a solution will come by some point soon isn't going to work anymore. And that's what leads us to the next part in this podcast, which is signs of vitality. And first off is the fact that the church was aware of the disorders or problems. They were very much cognizant that there were priests that largely didn't know the difference, again, between a gospel reading and an Old Testament reading. They were aware of that. They were aware that some areas didn't have a Roman Catholic priest at all. As a result of this, a five-year-long ecumenical council was formed between the years 1512 and 1517. And it was here that the Roman Catholic cardinals, as led by the popes, reviewed the four problems in an attempt to try to figure out a way to address them. Now, you might sit back in your car and say, wait a minute, I'm a pretty avid follower of Roman Catholic history. I know more probably than the average of the Rome of, of world history. Why don't I ever remember actually studying the Ecumenical Council? Heck, a council that meets for five years surely produced something to address these problems, but that was the problem, and it's the reason why it's not commonly known. More often than not, the council was more or less swept under the rug in Roman Catholic and world history. The reason being is because as much as those men in 1517 at the close of this ecumenical council, patted one another on the back saying, see, we're gonna nip these problems in the bud. We're not gonna have this issue anymore. All they did was add fuel to that ticking time bomb. The reason being is that the most forward directive that came from the ecumenical council series of meetings was this. That before any article or any book could be published by an individual, especially if it was commenting on the Roman Catholic Church or criticizing it, it had to seek approval from a bishop. That was their one crowning achievement for which they were so proud of back in 1517. And I'm not going to insult my listeners' intelligence by asking if there might be a problem with that directive that came out of the council's meetings. Of course there was. Censorship was the Roman Catholic answer. Rather than say, wait a minute, let's address these problems one by one and seek some real clarity, which again, it's not that they didn't attempt to do. But first and and foremost, what was on the front burner for the Roman Catholic Church wasn't addressing the grievances as much as they were trying to put the kibosh on the communication of those problems and grievances, which is the reason why, looking back, the Ecumenical Council, by and large, was considered a colossal failure. That, however, was the good news. Now, if you're listening in your car, you might have tried, you might have had to have corrected your steering when you've attempted to veer off the road. It's like, wait a minute, how is that good news? Well, it's good news when you consider what I'm going to discuss next. Because here was one of the problems that, uh, shall we say, surfaced from those initial four problems. And I don't have to say much. In fact, if I just tell you one name, many of you can probably stop the podcast now and say, yep, know where you're going with that. I'll just head to the next podcast. But I do encourage you to listen on anyhow, because there is far more myth than reality that revolves around the figure a, a Roman Catholic individual himself, a priest, Known as Martin Luther. Martin Luther is riding the modern day wave of the fruits of the printing press. He is hearing his constituents talk about problems not only in their immediate area in modern day Germany, but also of problems that other Roman Catholics are having throughout Europe. But Martin Luther didn't take the tact by pushing that ecumenical council directive of making sure that his parishioners have something approved, have anything that they write about the church approved by a bishop. He's not pushing that agenda. In fact, if anything, he's scratching his head as he considers those four and ponders those four problems and says, wait a minute. Yeah, those are problematic in and of themselves, but I've got other beefs here that I need to bring up. So in other words, Martin Luther takes those four concerns and he fans them out to the point of literally asking 95 individual questions that he thinks parishioners and the Roman Catholic Church needs to think about. You might say, questions? Why do I remember another word with that that, that number 95? Yeah, it's the 95 theses that he pounded to his church door for people to read and think about and consider. But let's unpack that a little bit and not make it as academically intimidating as sometimes it seems on the surface. Thesis is nothing more than a question. It's a formal question, basically, is what a thesis is. And Martin Luther, he's not trying to spread blasphemy. Under the guise of another name, he's not hiding behind some other individual and not saying he's proud of it either, but he is sketching out a total of 95 questions that he thinks for the betterment of the church, the higher ups need to address. We don't have any real proof that on that October 31st that he actually did nail them to his church door. It is popularly given that that's what he did because otherwise, how could so many people have learned about him? But again, as I mentioned earlier, all you need is one individual to grab a copy of that, take it to the local printer, and boom, it's their version of us putting something on Facebook or Twitter. However, for those of you that stayed tuned, which I'm glad you did, let me again just go out of my way here just to, I am not, what I'm about to say isn't to defend Luther. It's not my place to defend him, exonerate him, or praise him for that matter. But there's a more, again, myth than reality wrapped around what he actually did. First off, it's easier to say, and it's a lot easier to understand Martin Luther, when I tell you what he was not trying to do versus what he was doing. So let me start with that, that just to put it out there, Luther, in his 95 individual questions, he did not debate Roman Catholic interpretation of scripture. He was not debating that. He was not questioning. What, 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 did, what did Jesus mean when he said, my father, and, and me, the Son, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, people were asking those questions. They've been asking those questions since Constantine converted back in 313 AD. People have been asking those questions, but Martin Luther wasn't. He wasn't debating what Jesus might have written in the sand when people were trying to stone a woman for adultery. That's not where Martin Luther was going after. Martin Luther's primary grievance that he wanted to address was the selling of indulgences. The selling of indulgences, that's what gave Martin Luther heartburn more than anything else. To unpack that, the selling of indulgences, simply put, is a man or a woman comes to the priest for confession And rather than absolving them of their sins and giving them penance of a couple of prayers to say and maybe abstaining from certain activities for a day or two, Roman Catholic priests it was becoming commonly known would do away with the prayers and the fasting and abstinence and would rather charge the constituents, charge the parishioners, a particular price in order to do away with their sins. And that just turned Martin Luther off. He, he did not see any value with money coming into the church for a sinner to walk away supposedly scot-free. Just on the surface, even if somehow that was allowed, that's going to create and, and create or, or foster the separation of the haves and haves-nots within the Roman Catholic Church. Because your wealthy people could sin left and right, do the equivalent of write a check and continue on sinning. Where the poor, if they couldn't, truly didn't have two pennies to rub together, how do they get absolved of their sins? So there were so many wrongs with this. And that's what Martin Luther was fleshing out on that document, on that piece of parchment. Who and where and how and why did this selling of indulgences suddenly become permissible? In actuality. It started with the rise of the Roman Catholic cathedrals. Remember when I d- discussed in that podcast about the rise of the Roman Catholic cathedrals, that these were unbelievably expensive buildings. While the average parishioner's uh, donations and contributions every week, for the most part, wasn't going to cover all of the cost. So the idea of sell- selling indulgences, selling absolution, essentially, is also what helped foster that practice not only to start but to continue and from martin luther's perspective he didn't see an end in sight it was like the very first state that established a tollway, a toll booth in order to try to pay for the construction well once those funds were recuperated Find me a government official out there that would literally look at an income generating machine and say, well, we met the expenses for this so we can take the toll booth down. (laughs) Good luck with that, right? Once that source of revenue is tapped, the average individual just simply wants to keep it going. But this is what Martin Luther had enough of. As he said, a parishioner's activities, what they do, their sins, their prayers, their repentance, none of that should have anything to do with money even jesus himself wanted nothing to do with money per se other than to assist the poor jesus was had a very watchful eye for somebody that was pounding their chest because of the donation they made and then suddenly they're supposed to be absolved In the one of two times that Jesus actually addresses this idea of money or currency within the Roman Catholic Church was the one time, and it's a pointed example here to use, in discussing the idea of Martin Luther saying the selling of indulgences is wrong, should be condemned, and the practice ended. He is literally getting his foundation for that from Jesus himself, where it was written, That when the Sadducees and Pharisees attempted to try to catch Jesus, either by nailing him for insurrection politically or by nailing him that he wasn't a good Jew, by asking that deadly question, Jesus, should we pay the Roman tax or not? Should Jesus say, no, don't pay the tax. We Jews don't have any leader except Yahweh. Boom. He answered right religiously but politically he is considered now a rebel and they could report him for encouraging people to not pay the tax. If he said pay the tax, politically he was being a good citizen, but in terms of religion, he was actually then indicating that there's a higher power than Yahweh. To the Sadducees and the Pharisees, this was a win-win situation for them. But Jesus as he had done before and as he would do later on, turned that win-win for them into a double-losing proposition. Because when he was pressed with the question, and the Sadducees were salivating at waiting to hear what that answer was because there would be no good answer, Jesus turned their words on their heads when he asked, Let me see the coin that pays the tax. And of course, sure Yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Here, here's a, here's a, uh, a coin there, big toe. Ah, uh, come on, big guy. Show me. Here's that coin. What do you? Now, no, okay, we showed it to you. So again, same question, sir. Do we pay the tax or don't we? And Jesus replied, "Give to Caesar, what's Caesar's. And give to God, what's God's." Can you imagine the Sadducees and the Pharisees as Jesus walked away? Looking at, one, looking at one another, tearing out their hair. Thinking, Damn it! How the heck can we not corner this guy? That was such an easy black and white question. But to Jesus, it was nothing but gray. For Martin Luther, it was the same thing. What you do wrong and ask for absolution is not going to be righted or corrected or made better with the amount of money that you can donate to the church. Isn't it ironic that of the 95 theses, that one, the selling of indulgences, would be the one that would merit Martin Luther to become excommunicated, defrocked, and then excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church? Isn't it ironic when Luther, of all the issues, the one that nailed the church in the wallet, was the one that did him in? No different than the second time that Jesus dealt with money when he walked the earth. It The second time also did a man. Think about all those miracles that Jesus performed throughout his three years to our knowledge that he was in his active ministry. Sure, the Sadducees, Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin didn't want to hear about dead people walking again and lepers being healed and individuals being uh, absolved of their sins for being prostitutes or tax collectors, et cetera. They could handle that if that's all Jesus was doing and if he did it outside of Jerusalem. But when he came into the city and went into the church building itself, right into the central tenant building, when he ran in there into the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and individuals selling things and said, do not turn my father's house into this cauldron of sin. Isn't it ironic that when he hit the Jewish leadership Directly in the wallet, five days later, he's nailed to a cross. No different again when Martin Luther pressed the church to give up the selling of indulgences. Wait a minute. You're nailing us in the wallet, and you're going to pay a price. Defrocked, meaning he's pushed out of the Roman Catholic Church in terms of his position, but then he's also excommunicated as a member of the Roman Catholic Church. So again, his, amongst other issues that Martin Luther is having problems with, to put these 95 Theses largely into one descriptive um, way to explain it, Martin Luther had nuts and bolts problems with the church. It wasn't with, again, uh, scriptural interpretation or anything of that nature, it was the nuts and the bolts, how we were responding to our parishioners. No different than those four terms that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, immorality, ignorance, plurality, and absenteeism. That's what Martin Luther was pushing. So how does the Roman Catholic Church then respond to this? Well, shortly before he's excommunicated or before he's defrocked, the defenders more or less stand their ground by saying, quote, It was the authority of the Pope. Thus, to deny the legality of the indulgences was to deny the authority of the Pope. They cornered Martin Luther by simply saying that it was the Heavenly Father, the Holy Father, that condoned the selling of indulgences. That puts an end to the argument. Go ahead, Martin Luther. Let's go ahead and take those ninety-five questions down, and let's just get a let's just walk over to the uh, local office, Max. There, buy one of their high-priced shredders, and let's put that document in there, and let's burn those embers once we're done. Right? We want nothing to do with this. All right. I know you probably had a bad day before, maybe a bad night's sleep, but let's just take those theses down. It's the Pope that said it's it's this is all a go, gave the green light to indulgences. Boom, and a discussion. But of course because of the printing press sending these 95 theses out. That only led to more people demanding answers, and ironically enough, more people asking more questions. To or for the Roman Catholic Church, to attempt to justify the selling of indulgences, that it was the authority of the Pope, and for Martin Luther to dig in his heels and say, that authority is still immoral. That's what led to the ultimate question. Where does authority ultimately lie within the Roman Catholic Church? That was the beginning of the split that would ultimately pit Martin Luther on the outside, but unbeknownst to the Roman Catholic Church, send a few followers behind Martin Luther, and those few followers became a few hundred followers, To a few thousand followers, to tens and then hundreds of thousands of people following Martin Luther, demanding an answer to the questions that he asked. Now, if it may seem that I'm putting Martin Luther on a pedestal here, don't take me at face value on that. The reason being is Martin Luther also had a dark side to him, where he was literally willing to take the Jewish community and use them as scapegoats to subvert some of the problems with that the Roman Catholic Church was now experiencing because of the printing press spreading his questions, but countless other questions coming from other areas of Europe. So, When we come back then for the next podcast, we're going to continue to discuss Martin Luther's impact and why he was going to be leaning on the Jewish community to try to right the wrongs that were happening. And as he stated in his own words, if the Jews cannot be converted to Christianity, well, then they should be, quote unquote, dealt with. And it wasn't a pretty description of what he meant by that. So when we come back to we're going to find out that Martin Luther was not the only one asking questions on the surface. You might say, "Okay, yeah, that's when he spins off and forms his own Roman his own uh, church. Not necessarily. Something's going to happen between then and now. And we're also going to see another man by the name of John Calvin also start asking more questions. So thanks again for listening today. If you go to my website, ceconsella.com, email me with any questions that you might have. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.